Hello everyone and welcome to episode 77 of the Theatrical Mustang podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This episode is an interview with Frederick Haygreen, who is an actor and a singer, fantastic performer. I first became familiar with his work when I went to see American Idiot at Arts West. He is currently playing John Hinckley in Assassins, which is a co-production between Act Theatre and Fifth Avenue Theatre. And so we talked about Sondheim, we talked about assassinations and composing and acting, and my inner musical theater geek came out in full force for this interview. During the interview, we were trying to remember all four successful, and I say that with quotation marks, which is not helpful for you listening, but just so you get that visual, uh, assassination attempts of presidents. And we missed one. So it's Abraham Lincoln, obviously, uh, James A. Garfield, William McKinley, and John F. Kennedy. If you're enjoying the Theatrical Mustang podcast and you want to be a sponsor or a donor, please hop over to theatricalmustang.podbean.com. We'd sure appreciate your support. And as always, follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, share episodes, recommend episode guests, and thank you so much for being part of our community. Please enjoy episode 77 with Frederick Haygreen. I am really excited to welcome this guest to the podcast. Frederick Haygreen is on the podcast! Hello! Welcome! So I first became familiar with your work when I saw you in uh, American Idiot at Arts West, Mm -hmm. and then I had the pleasure of seeing Opening Night of Assassins, which is a co-pro between Fifth Ave and Aft Theater. Uh, I don't know if there could be two more different characterizations (laughs) in musical theater. Yeah. Um, It's... It's it's kind of tricky. I mean, you you kind of work with what you have, and and you try and and find whatever about these characters that's that's you know that you share with them. But when it's someone who's going through a heroin addiction, and then it's someone that's that has um, you know gone a little nuts up over over a celebrity. Um, yeah, it's a little it's a little tricky figuring out. Like, how exactly you want to tackle these two kind of crazy roles. Absolutely. So I think, let's dig into Assassins first, and maybe yeah. we'll go and we'll time travel back to American Idiot later. So, John Hinckley, huh? uh, first of all, the wig is oh amazeballs. <laughs> what was that moment when you first put it on? Well, you know, I had all of these ideas about John Hinckley and, and the kind of person he was and the shape, you know, that he took and... and um, how he presented himself to the world. And I didn't get a, a really solid idea of that until they put me in my wig for my wig fitting. And this wig, if you haven't seen it, is, <laughs> it is a dirty blonde mop on top of my head. And uh, our, our wig designer, Joyce, she's fantastic. And she makes my hair look vile. Um, <laughs> But it's great. It it uh, it helps me transform into this person that is so different from me. Um, that because I physically look and feel different from myself, it's so much easier to fall into this this other character. Is there freedom in that transformation for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
um, like everybody, I feel we're, we're, we all struggle with being, you know, self-conscious We're we're, we think about our image, we think about how we want to look and, and to be John Hinckley in the show and to wear the jeans and have the wig and the huge glasses that just all kind of flies out the window. I'm never, I'm never primping in the mirror before I go on. I never am thinking like, Oh, I hope I look right today, you know? Um, because the point is that I don't, I'm not supposed to. And it, it is totally freeing that I don't ever have to worry about how I appear before I walk out on stage. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's also when you, when you have a fantastic costume designer and a fantastic wig designer, they arm you with, uh, so many tools and so many, um, just different colors that you get to paint with that you wouldn't normally get to just in the rehearsal room or, you know, practicing by yourself or whatever. Um, and they, they, if they're in line with the, the director's vision, it helps inform you, uh, to make better choices than as an actor, to make more authentic choices as an actor. Uh, yeah. How much research did you do? Was there, I was, I would assume, since these are all real people, there's a lot of dramaturgical research that yeah. went in before even hitting that first rehearsal day. Yeah. So, so when you're playing anyone who existed in history, you want to do a good job of representing them truthfully, but at the same time, you don't want to do an impression. You don't want to put something on. Right. Um, so I, I tried to do as much textual research as I could. I wanted to know the words that John was saying, um, uh, the things that he did. I didn't necessarily uh, uh, look at a lot of videos of his of movement, the way he spoke, because, because you know, once you try to ad adopt someone's mannerisms, um, it can go down a path of, of caricature. Right. Uh, and that's, that's not something that I, I wanted to to mess with. So I tried to, to, um, do as much research as I could without gleaning those, um, uh, you know, physical tics, uh, speech patterns, things like that. Cause it, 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 it feels more honest coming from my voice and my body than, if I was trying to put on someone else's, you know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. This guy is fascinating. I was doing my little research, you know, on the, while well, having coffee this morning. So he, after watching, uh, Jodie Foster uh -huh. and it's taxi driver, taxi right? Driver, yeah. Became absolutely obsessed with her. Uh -huh. And went to Yale, enrolled in a creative writing class, was slipping notes under her door. Mm -hmm. It's just beyond. And so he, and he actually, uh, you know more about this than I do, but they sort of uh, legally like wanted to try cases differently after he was declared uh, insane by yeah. of temporary insanity. Yeah, so he never went to he didn't really go to jail, no, right? No, he didn't. He um, so he fired six shots, and uh, he hit a number of people. Uh, uh, one one man he hit in the head, uh, who eventually died from his wounds after the trial, and. Uh, he was found uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, and ever since then, um, they, they do try people differently right. because he is now living as a citizen 
outside of the system. He gets to go to his mother's house right. for like weeks at a time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the one of the oddest things I found in my research. Uh, so in 1981 was when John Hinckley attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan. And uh, since then, he has been in institutions, um, you know, getting the help that he needs. And because of good behavior, he's been released uh, often to go to his parents' house uh, in West Virginia. Um, and, and most of it has been supervised. Uh, but in 2004, I believe, I think it was 2004, he got in trouble because after one of his visits to his parents' house, he snuck... Um, a bunch of Jodie Foster stuff in with him. Still. He still had it bad. He still had it bad in 2004. Um, and that just goes to show like how intense um, mental illness can be. You know? Is that a common... I mean, I would assume across the different characters, because for folks who aren't familiar with the show, mm-hmm. it's basically all the U.S. presidential assassins. Right. Attempts and successful... Right. There's just one. Isn't there just one? That's, wait. Lincoln was successful. I'm like Lincoln was successful. Right no, no. So um, I get this confused too. So uh, John Wilkes Booth was call successful. It successful. Right. But, right. Right. Okay. He <laughs> he got what he wanted. He uh, Booth assassinated Lincoln. Um, Charlie Charlie Gateau assassinated. Um, uh, oh shit! What's his name? No. Joel Gosh assassinated. Bill McKinley, and and the name is escaping me. But you there know were three what? Assassins. I'll, re- I'll, re- I'll research it and I'll put it in the intro, Great. and so folks will know before they get to this point in the interview. They <laughs> will. Um, uh, yeah. So in our in our show, there are three successful assassins, and the rest are unsuccessful. Oh right, J- JFK is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. Another. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> And are there common, would you say like there's common, in terms of the true histories of these folks before they become characters, is mental illness sort of a, it would seem, a common thread? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I think this play, just as much as it's about um, the American dream and it's about uh, the way that we view guns, it's also about um, how how uh, people that struggle with mental illness um, survive or don't in our society. Um and it's tragic. You look at these these nine characters, most of whom, if not all of them, have uh, some severe mental disabilities, and they didn't receive the the help that they needed to right. to overcome you know their their disadvantages. So it's hard. You you watch the show or you're in this show and you and you don't want to sympathize with these people that oh, did horrific do. who did horrific things, right? Um, but you can't help it. As an audience member, yeah, I absolutely I would say by the end of the night, everyone was with with all of you. Everyone saw these people as human beings who had desires, right? And this was their sort of you know not healthy way of somehow fulfilling these really deep desires, right. human needs. Tell me about your director, John John Langs, right? Oh, the new John. artistic director of Act. Uh-huh. How has it been to work with him? Oh my gosh, he has been fantastic. I don't think I've ever worked with a director like John. Um, he he doesn't come into the room with an ego, and 
uh, he knows what he wants, which are two incredible qualities in a director. Um, and so our, our rehearsal rooms were so safe and uh, we felt like we could we could bounce anything off of each other and John would tell us honestly his experience of you know what we were what we were putting out right. there uh, so we never had to worry about him sugarcoating anything we never had to worry about him not telling us something because he always would if he felt it uh, and he, it was never precious to him it was never there was never any disrespect or anything but it was never he never tiptoed around us um, there were times when you know, uh, we would go through a scene and if, and if he wasn't feeling like we were being specific and if we were being honest, he would let us know and he would call it out, call us out on it. And he was always right. He could always tell, um, John's just incredibly talented that way. Also, he, he has such an eye for making, um, for staging in a, a really compelling and truthful way. Yeah. He's just fantastic. I would work with him again in a heartbeat. Awesome. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of, I wouldn't say the strategy, but the artistic choice to produce this show in an election year? Yeah. Are you finding, I mean, does that feed how you're approaching it? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the the fact that this this show is taking place, um, you know, with with the election happening later this year, um, it definitely gives the, the shows like political themes more of a charge. But what I found is that, uh, um, the occurrence of, of gun violence in the news has, has supercharged our show in ways that none of us really thought that it would. Um, you know, when you, when you read in the news every single day about, about some person um, taking a gun and and using it against people, uh, it really makes you think about the show that we're doing, why we're doing it, um, what we're saying about guns, what we're saying about the people who use them, um, and our society's love affair with them. And that, that has been uh, really the most... Um, informative and and effective <laughs> uh, uh, thing that's been that's been coloring our show and the guns that are used those I mean amazing because you're spanning what over 150 years yeah. of different kinds of guns mm -hmm. that are that characters use it's right they, and they look so different it's interesting to see the evolution yeah um, our our props master uh, props designer uh, did a fantastic job of selecting guns that were historically accurate. Like um, uh, at the beginning of the show, you'll hear the proprietor describe um, Joel Gosh's gun, and that's exactly what it is. They have a they have a, a gun with um, owls printed on the side. Uh, they wanted everything to be historically accurate because when you're dealing with with subject material like this, you have to respect it. You have to you have to treat it with, you know, the integrity and, and the, you know, you, you can't have You can't ass. phone you in can't, the gun. You can't, you can't phone you can't in phone the, in, the gun that, you know, right. especially if we're going to say, if we're going to say the things that we're saying in this show, we have to, you know, mean what we're doing. Yeah. 
Let's talk a little bit about Mr. Stephen Sondheim. Ooh, okay. So he's a he's a fella that is oh, yeah. drawn to darker themes. Uh, <laughs> listening to this music, having done a few Sondheim shows, the music I feel like this stands out as being. I don't know. It's just not. It's, it feels to me just musically a little bit set apart from Sweeney Todd or yeah. Into the Woods. It's uh, more contemporary, maybe, is what yeah. I'm looking for. Well, well, unlike most of Sondheim's other shows, this isn't sung through. There's so many book scenes. Right. Um, and there, there are so many characters from all different times. Uh, and what Stephen Sondheim does brilliantly is is create a musical world around his characters. And most of the time, these characters are existing in the same place in the same time. But in Assassins, everyone comes from a different time period, a different part of the country, a uh, different background. And and he, he creates a musical world around these people. And sometimes we are doing, like, a cakewalky number, <laughs> uh, you know, at the um, Buffalo... Uh, American exposition, um, or like the the duet that I sing with Laura yeah. Griffith, "Unworthy of Your Love," is like this weird, almost like John Denvery kind of love ballad. Uh, so yeah, he he creates he creates these musical worlds around the characters that he's created, and that's I think that's why. One of the reasons why Assassins just feels yeah, and sounds different than absolutely. his other stuff, you know? So did you play guitar before the show, or did you learn it specifically for this role? Um, I've always kind of just messed around on the guitar. I've never considered myself to be a real guitar player, but um, it wasn't until American Idiot, where I knew I would be playing the guitar... Oh, right. Uh, ...that I really, like, hunkered down and tried to get better. Um, because no one wants to go see a show and have <laughs> someone, like, do a shitty job of... <laughs> playing an instrument on stage, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Talk about, that duet is absolutely haunting. How did that, I mean, take me through that first music rehearsal with Laura, like, yeah. to getting it on stage. It's I, For me, it was one of the standout numbers of the show. Oh, thanks. Um, well, that song is so tricky because it's, you know, it's a love duet. So you... About Jodie Foster about Jody and Charlie Foster. Manson. Exactly. <laughs> and and we, had to, we had to create this sound together that made it feel like we were singing to each other, that we were singing in unison, in like we were, that we were one voice. Right. Um, but, but we are worlds apart. We are, uh, I'm in my basement. She's in her world singing to the people that we are obsessed over. Uh, um, but yeah, Joel Fram, who was our music director, uh, he's a hard ass, but in the best way possible. Uh, he, he, made sure that the sound that we were creating was a unified sound. Um, and, and I think that, I think that's one of the interesting things about the song. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell me about some of your other cast members who have you worked with before? Who is this a oh, new yeah. experience? Um, I've worked with a, a couple of the people in our cast. I've worked with Nick DeSantis and Kendra Casabon before, who are both lovely people. Everyone in the cast is just outrageously talented and <laughs> stupid sweet like everyone is it's like a family down there um but i i haven't had the opportunity to work with uh many of these people and god it's like coming to a master class every day because these are the seattle stars that have been just yeah. kicking ass um for years and now i get to work with them which is so cool and 
sometimes really intimidating. <laughs> you know, because you don't want to be like the new young guy right. and be a piece of shit. So, <laughs> well, you absolutely hold your own, folks. Go see Assassins. When do you run till? May 8th. May 8th. Long run. Go to act theater.org and uh-huh. I will put the link in the episode description. You don't want to miss this one. Let's talk about American Idiot. Now. Okay. So how did that how did you come to that show? And I would imagine it's a was a much different rehearsal process and attacking that characterization oh, and that music. Yeah. Well, um American Idiot has always been like kind of on my radar. I grew up listening to Green Day music like oh, most gosh. people my age. Yeah. Yep. Um and so when Arts West announced that they were going to do it and that Eric Ankin was going to direct it, I thought like, oh man, I want to be involved in that. So, you know, auditions and callbacks and everything like that uh, happened and I, and I got the part. And, um, and then really, when we started rehearsals, just really started trying to, to map out a story with Green Day lyrics. It's hard when um, you do a, a show, a story-driven show that doesn't really have any kind of book scenes, traditional book scenes, and is based in, uh, like, pop-punk lyrics. Um, Because most of the time, when you're doing musicals, you're singing words that are written um, to be performed in a story on stage. And uh, the uh, American Idiot album... Uh, was just that it was a it was a concept album and and there were some uh, minor lyric tweaks but for the most part we we were uh, we were putting a story th- through the lens of of these lyrics that Billy Joel Armstrong and wrote. isn't it I believe I read that he sort of always had a vision for this this work to be on stage eventually eventually like, he didn't yeah. know what it was what form it was going to take exactly but when he was writing these songs, they had that quality to him, or that's what his vision was for it. Right. And so um, when they started uh, developing American Idiot for uh, its run on Broadway, he was um, really uh, involved in in shaping the show and, and um, uh, shaping the music. Um, but if you watch, there's a there's a documentary on Netflix called Broadway Idiot and it's all about oh, um, awesome. how that show came to be and a lot of it is about Billy Joel Armstrong and his creation of the album obviously because that's what you know the musical is from um, so I would suggest checking that out right on uh, the direction of that piece was brilliant I mean <laughs> seeing that I, I sat uh, I sat for the show but about half the audience members had an immersive Experience. Yeah. What was that like as a performer to know that half the audience is going to sit where they are and then the other half is going to be behind you, around you, moving throughout the show? Oh my gosh. It was, at first, it was horrifying. Like, I was so yeah. worried. There's this, you know, the audience is always a variable. It's, you never really know how they're going to respond because every audience is different. Um, and then you have them move around with you on stage. Uh, so I think I think I wasn't alone and and just being a little nervous of like oh my gosh how is this going to work out in this building that's we've never really done this before I've never done anything like this before um, and because Eric Ankrum is such a smart guy and he understands um, audiences and he understands story he was able to create this like 
chaos, this controlled chaos that that is is the the heart of the show. Um, so it was it was really fun. It was a challenge at first. Just you know, you're choreographing strangers to move at certain times <laughs> in a musical, and that's a scary thing to do. Was it, what what's the funniest story that you can tell oh from my like because there has to be like at oh, least yeah. one rogue audience oh, member, yeah. right? Um, so uh, a few numbers into the show, uh, we do uh, we did um, uh, the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. And in that number, I play the guitar and I walk around um, in the main space that they had. Uh, and during that number, there are a lot of different, um, you know, uh, audience groups moving. Sure. And, and this one lady, she was she must have been <laughs> really feeling it that night because uh, I am I'm walking to my to my mark, um, and I see at a corner of my eye. This woman, uh, who in line with everybody else is walking across the stage, decides that she's going to do a cartwheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit because it's like, of course, of course, this is going to happen when we ask when we ask audience members to get involved. They're going to want to get involved in different degrees. Some people aren't going to do it at all, and other people are going to want to sing and dance along with us. And that lady did. She she did uh, that like cartwheel somersaulty thing, um, and then later on in the song, as they were moving around, she did it again, <laughs> like, and it was hysterical. All of us were like so proud of her for just feeling it and doing it. She was moved she by was, the music. She was moved, or she was drunk, but hopefully the both. Fuck, maybe why both. not? Why not? <laughs> what would you say? Because you also you also act in non musicals. Yes, I do. What? Would you say your percentage is? What is the percent percentage musical theater to straight plays? Well, I love doing both. Um, I'll say honestly that in Seattle, you will get um, more money by doing musicals. There is more money to be sure. made in musicals, and if you're if you're an actor trying to pay the bills, you'll take. Oftentimes, you'll take contracts that pay more than than others, and most often, those are musicals. Um, uh, but whenever I get the opportunity to do a straight play, I will jump at it because that's that's all I did in college. It's what I love doing, um, and I, I just did really, really at Arts West, right? Um, and it was so it was so freeing. It was uh, you. I love musicals. I love singing, uh, but there's there's something about eliminating that part of your brain when you're doing a show that frees you up to really live in these characters and live with the people that are you're on stage with. And when there's a tiny percentage of your brain space being used to think about like. Okay, I gotta you know make sure I'm coming in at the right time. I need to make right. sure that I'm you know I'm singing correctly. All of these things. When you eliminate that, there's there's more freedom to to really live on stage, and that's it doesn't get better than that. I love perf- I I totally resonate with what you're saying. I I love performing in musicals, but there's this heightened level. It's not only there's a heightened level of spectacle, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not only that, it's okay. I have to 
make sure my voice is healthy. It's that right. added worry of my voice could go out and that could ruin this whole thing. Right. Uh, Patty Lapone was uh, in an interview or she wrote it in her book or something. Patty Lapone said this. Um, that she that she loved doing plays and hated doing musicals because musicals depended upon two muscles, right. and if and if those two muscles are tired, are stressed, whatever, then it completely affects your show. Uh, and <laughs> it couldn't be more true. Yes, Patty Lapone. <laughs> Where did you go to college? Where did you get your training? I uh, I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York. Oh, right on. Yeah. Are yeah, you originally from it. New York area? Mm-hmm. Or? I grew up in Black Diamond, Washington, which is, uh, like, huh. uh, it's near Ording, Enumclaw, okay, Matt sure. Rainier area. Um, yeah, I, I grew up there and then went to Ithaca College and studied performance and directing and loved it, and then I came back to Seattle. Was it from an early age that you were just so stoked to perform? Were you putting on shows in the backyard? Not, not really. I've always been like a pretty shy person, so I never really, I never really um, uh, put on performances. But I've always loved singing. It's always been like my favorite thing to do. And uh, so, any opportunity that I that I could to sing, I would take. Um, and so, started doing choir in Mm -hmm. elementary school and then uh you know you get into junior high and high school and there's the school play and the musical and and that's really what hooked me i did uh into the woods my uh in ninth grade what part i was jack i played jack and uh and i was hooked i i didn't i didn't really comprehend up until that point what theater could do and what musicals could do and I knew from then on that that's what I wanted to do that's the that's what I I felt like I should be doing and so that's what I've done since then congratulations thanks who are some of your favorite composers who do you love to sing oh man well I mean I grew up in like the golden age of Disney uh, so of course, of course, like Alan Menken um, and Stephen Schwartz, all these guys that write the funnest uh, kids musicals. Basically, that's what Disney movies are. Um, they like, I love singing their music. It's fun, and and it and it taps into this part of your heart that that is real and honest and simple and. That was me in elementary school. Not, oh gosh, it was always like the funny part. So like Zazu and the Lion King. I want to be a mighty king. Like memorizing every single verse and like performing it in the backyard. Uh Just for no one else but myself. Oh yeah. You know, just to, there's something about a heart, the heart connection you have as a kid, like that pure joy. And then you're able to recreate it by singing it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, of course, Stephen Sondheim is is the best. He is, in my opinion, the, the most intelligent musical theater composer we've had in American history. Um, but also, I mean, Leonard Bernstein has has written some of the most gorgeous musical theater music you've ever heard. Like, West Side Story does not get better than that. Um as far as you know, that's 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 as far as musical theater goes. But I think my big my biggest influences 
vocally um, have been have been like singer songwriters, Carol King, James Taylor. Yeah. Um, God, I am and will always be a huge Whitney Houston fanboy until I die. Uh, yeah, I think those are like the the biggest influences on me and the people that I really I can't help but appreciate the most. Would you ever try your hand at songwriting yourself? Do you? Yeah, um, song songwriting has never been one of my fortes. I love doing it, but it's never been something that I felt like this is my calling. You know <laughs> what I mean? Um, but but I love making music, and and uh, it's such a release, and it's such a such a good therapeutic outlet for me that I'll probably be writing for a long time, but who knows if I'll ever like perform it or, you know, share it or. I think it's okay to do it just for yourself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think no that's one fair. else has to see it or listen to it. Right. Do you play other instruments other than guitar? Yeah. Well, I, um, I grew up playing the piano. So, so thankfully going into American idiot and going into, uh, assassins, I, I know what it felt like to accompany myself on a musical instrument it wasn't a guitar but I knew my my brain didn't have to adjust to accompanying myself which is tricky yeah 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 um yeah but I have a a keyboard in my bedroom that I play every day and I love yeah just music is a huge part of my life What's on your bucket list, both musical and non-musical oh. roles? Oh, man. Let's, let's say it here and let's make it so. Let's speak it into existence. Um, I really, really would love to play Tony in West Side Story one day. I love that show, and I love that music, and and Tony and Maria are those heartbreaking, yeah. wonderful, naive, beautiful star-crossed lovers and who doesn't want to play one of those guys, right? <laughs> um at some point in my life i would love to play sweeney todd uh again that music is <laughs> glorious it is it is fantastic um and god what a creepy character <laughs> um i don't i don't know uh I'm, I'm thinking of of, of non-musical uh, parts that I would love to play. I'd like to see you. Do, I'd like to see. You, not that I have any influence, but <laughs> I'd like to see you do. I think that you could do Ibsen like really well. well thank you. Like throw you into Head of Gabler. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Oh yeah, I'll be Torvald. I'll do it. <laughs> What's up next for you? What what projects upcoming? Can you share? Um, I can share with you that I am involved with Paint Your Wagon at the Fifth Avenue Theater. Awesome. Yeah, so um, when we're here in Seattle, uh, I'll be the swing for the show. I'll be the male swing, um, which if you're unfamiliar with what a swing is, it's um, uh, an understudy, basically, uh, who covers a number of parts that swings into a part if someone drops out. And the show transfers to uh, the Ordway in St. Paul uh, later in the summer, and I'll be um, in the ensemble for that. Yeah, so that's those are my summer plans. Congratulations. Thank you. Have you been to the Twin Cities before? No, I haven't. I'm so excited. I Yeah, I grew up in uh, Madison, and I went oh, to school cool. pretty close to the Twin Cities. So oh, you'll cool. have You'll have a lot of fun, I think. There's yeah. a lot of great art, art going on there well, as well. Well, you'll have to 
tell me for things to look out for. Yes, absolutely. I will. I will do that offline when we stop, <laughs> stop recording. I have some friends I went to college with who are in the area too. So oh, cool. Um, can you take us out with? I don't know. Maybe your favorite line from Assassins. Ooh. It could be yours or someone else's. Oh my gosh! But well, like, let's def- let's leave our listeners with chills oh running up. Well, I don't know if it's going to be chills, but that's okay. But basically, anything that comes out of Kendrick Asabom's mouth is, <laughs> is comedy gold She's in the show. Amazing! She is amazing. Um, anytime she opens her mouth, it's it's just so. It comes from such a like a deep place. So when she's funny, she is like gut bustingly funny. Um, I think "Should I Shot It" is my favorite thing that my favorite moment. That she has. <laughs> yeah, I won't ruin it for anybody that decides to come see Assassins, but she will shit, crack you I up. shot it. Shit, I shot it. That is. I think that's a fun note to go out on. Hey, hey thank you for coming on the podcast and cool. talking with me. Thank go see Assassins, everyone. Then go yes. see Paint Your Wagon Yay. and everything. And uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me.